everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Second Features. Um, my name is Adrian Smith and I'm here with my co-host. Hello everyone, I am Laura Main. And we are doing a film today that you chose. Uh, so... Yes, and I'm very interested to get your opinion on this film because uh, it yeah. is a weird one, but not in the ways that yes. we usually... Uh, not in, it's not the kind of weird we usually do, it's just weird. Yeah, I think it's good actually. We're kind of reining it back in slightly from the... Uh, the more outlandish stuff that we've started to stray towards. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, so we're doing today. We're doing Smashing Time, and I'll let you talk about that more because you've. Um, in fact, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose the film and also who our guest today is? All right. To be. Well, it's very. I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, our guest is Professor Melanie Williams, who is at the University of East Anglia and is an expert on British cinema. And she's done books on uh, stardom, on David Lean, and on Ealing, and on the 1960s. Um, and uh, we actually kind of worked on this project together a few years ago. And that's how I came to know about Smashing Time. So it's this film from, I think it was 1967 it came out. Um, and it's uh, it stars all the kind of a lot of kind of faces that are quite well known from the 60s and it's the kind of satire oh, of the swinging london and it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of trying very hard to be quite funny but it's very colorful and it's very slapstick um and uh i just kind of no but it's not really that well known i think um mm. in terms of like swing like the, those kind of swinging london films uh, but I kind of uh, ran across it um, on this research project on the 60s. Uh, and me and Mel sort of, um, I think Mel also classes it as one of her favourites as well from the era. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort That's of like, praise. yeah, it's like become kind of legendary, I think, among people who really are into <laughs> like 60s British cinema smashing time. I, I think Talking Pictures TV might have shown it a couple of times. So maybe it's yeah. gotten a wider audience than it may have had otherwise yeah because it's it doesn't seem to be that easily available on dvd or things like that it's sort of quite seems like it's been quite overlooked yeah in more recent years but yeah talking pictures have had it a few times that's how i watched it cool um so adrian what what did you think of smashing time because <laughs> i know it's not it's not necessarily your usual thing right no well i, I don't know i love 60s movies as much as the next man um and yeah because you know, obviously, this is quite a contrast to last month's film, which was my choice. And perhaps people might think that that is all that I just watch films like Sex Mission all the time. But you do, Adrian. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, maybe that might be true. But no, but I, um, at heart, British 60s cinema has always been my default. And that's what I probably read about and written about and watched the most yeah your academic um, work so, is around 60s cinema isn't it yeah so so it's nice to it was it was fun to watch this one because i've i've never seen it but i i do love rita tushingham especially mm. um i used to use a taste of honey uh with students many years ago um talking about representation of of young people on screen and stuff like that so um it was fun to see her doing a musical yeah, it is a musical a new experience um, with Rita Tushingham, which is um, an interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, we we need to talk about the plot and who directed it and everything like that. But and the the thing that perhaps makes it so unique is that it's a swinging sixties film coming towards the tail end of the swinging sixties that is satirizing the swinging sixties mm -hmm. while still being in it. Yes, it's like. It's like if which is very I mean, swinging sixties, if you think about well, it. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like if Austin Powers came along, taking the Mickey out of that stuff 
whilst it was all still happening around them. But it, and it made me wonder whether whether this film sort of signified the end. I mean, they talk in the film quite a lot about whether things are are in or out, if you're with it or... Well, or see, not. ironically, Adrian, the film came out just at the tail end of the swinging 60s phenomenon when people were just being yeah. like, this is, a, this is all just a bit shit. Um, yeah. You can bleep that if you like. Uh, <laughs> but but ironically, uh, it's a film satirising people who think things are with it and not. And it came out mm. a bit late, so it's actually not with it. Um, no. at all it's like slightly not with it smashing time and, yeah <laughs> it's just it's a little like, bit uncool um it just missed the boat <laughs> if you're made well i'm not sure if this film could ever have really been considered cool but uh, but i don't it's it's like what old people think is cool i suppose well, that's is part like of the problem what, what film producers try to get like that's why i don't know i have this theory that like 60s films about young people are so cringy because they're all made by like these middle-aged male producers who are like mm-hmm. we need to get a f- we need to make a film that's, that's that the young people will like that's with it that you know like that's why you get all these cringy pop music films with big bands in them which mm-hmm. uh are just kind of a bit embarrassing don't you think like mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what i mean am i making sense yes no absolutely it is it's it's this kind of paternalistic yeah. viewpoint of uh, oh young people this is what the young doing people young things like. and so yeah a film satirizing it's almost like it's um 60s pop is eating itself yeah it's kind of satirizing itself but from the point of view of what george melly who was in his 40s at least i think at this point but like- it's kind of what he thinks is is ridiculous about young people but at the same time presumably wanting to appeal to the audience that he is being somewhat disparaging of. Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, as for the plot, we it's not mm. really, doesn't really have much of a plot. Uh, Brenda and Yvonne are two northern working class girls who come from the north to London to make it in, um, you know, this like really kind of fashionable swinging place. Uh, so Yvonne is played by Lynn Redgrave and she just wants to be discovered. And Brenda is like really dour and just doesn't buy into any of this crap. And she's only there because mm-hmm. her friend wants to go. And Brenda is played mm-hmm. by Rita Tushingham. But um, it's hilarious because the when they get into London on the train, um, as soon as they get off the train, there is this kind of musical interlude where they're both singing Carnaby Street quite badly oh, and like trying it's... to hop down, like trying to find yeah. where Carnaby Street is so they can be discovered. It's like, it's kind of, um, it's quite, it's actually pretty funny. Uh, it starts off quite the, well. I mean, we, the, to be honest, when I, when the film started and that they started singing Carnaby that song, Street. it grated on me so much. <laughs> I thought, I'm not really sure if I can take this movie. Um, the singing set, it's like one of those really bad amateur Nancys from Oliver, you know, where they just sing in a really awful cockney accent. I think Oliver was and, the year after this. So, uh, yeah, well, yeah, but it, it feels like, it feels like how everybody does an impression of Nancy singing, if only he needs me or whatever. Yeah. If they, they kind of sing like that, which is weird because they're supposed to be Northern, although Lynn Redgrave is from London. So when she sings, she sounds like a Londoner. But when she speaks, 
she sounds like somebody who's watched too much Coronation Street. A little bit, yeah. There's a, a bit um, of that. But vibe. the singing, yeah, the singing really grated on me at the beginning of the film. <laughs> But it, it improves. You get used to it, don't you? Like, and they're not necessarily doing a musical number thing. It's just like it's kind of no. like um, like uh, musical interludes. Um, it'll yeah, make more sense like if you kind of watch the film. But they're not actually breaking into song. It's kind of like a voiceover no. uh, song, if that makes it's sense. It's like they're providing, they're singing, like we're hearing their thoughts as as songs. Yes, which is kind of um, quite yeah. cool, actually. It's a little yeah. bit experimental. Um, and there's one point where they're kind of narrating what they're doing, I think. Yeah. Um, so Rita Tushingham's character is singing about what she is doing right now. Which is um, which is very it. quirky. It's uh, yeah. very Dizui Deschanel, actually. So, <laughs> yeah, I like... That's true, yeah. I, so, now, although the initial song made me want to rip my own ears off, <laughs> it, it gets better, I will say, oh, in its defence. But um, yeah, essentially that's the plot. And of course they don't get discovered straight away. They end up in a series of mishaps. Um, it's a very mm. sort of slapsticky film. So, you know, Brenda gets a job washing dishes in um, this horrible sort of uh, greasy spoon because, you know, they, they couldn't afford to pay for their breakfast because they got robbed. Oh, yeah. So Brenda's washing dishes and then she starts this kind of fight with ketchup and paint and it just descends into this sort of like custard pie farce and there's a few moments like that in the film where everything just gets a bit kind of slapstick and over the top there's a lot of kind of physical comedy and a lot of really kind of visual Mm. gags and humor and there's so i mean straight away we're already getting recognizable faces like the guy that runs the cafe is arthur mullard who's just his face was on television i'm sure throughout my entire childhood but I'm looking back at his credits and he's just been in hundreds of things. Mm. He's one of those faces that was always on old TV shows or uh, in movies. And um, yeah, he's got the perfect face for, for playing an angry, greasy mm. spoon guy. There's loads of like cameos in this, like um, in A Taste of Honey, the two guys who starred with Rita Tushingham in A Taste of Honey. Um, the one who plays the uh, gay best friend and um, I can't remember who the other actor is, but they, uh, yeah, they turn up in a sort of cameo role when she's working in a shop. And it's like, this is like little faces from the 60s yeah. uh, just dotted around. <laughs> yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, it's the um, the black sailor who gets her pregnant. Yes. Um, is, uh, just turns up in this uh, bo- trendy boutique that she gets a job in. And yeah, it was. I was really pleased to see Murray Melvin. Uh, That's it. Just, just drop him. <laughs> Um, I just got to have to get this out of the way okay. now. Murray Melvin is the first person in this movie that I have met. Oh God! So you know what? I had a I had a Rita Tushingham now. story, Adrian, but I was going to keep oh, good. it under that's wraps. That's even better. Because no, that's better. You know, <laughs> but now, now I think we should we should pit our stories against each other to see which yeah, one is well, better. <laughs> yours is already going to be better if you met Rita Tushingham. She so was amazing. Fun. Yeah, she's, she's lovely. So lovely. Yeah. But yeah, that was fun. To, so yeah, because uh, Brenda, although Brenda seems less interested in swinging London and in getting famous and all that stuff, she ironically gets all the success that her friend Yvonne wants. Because Yvonne is painted as this kind of crass, blonde um, bimbo who would be better suited as a bar. Well, she tries too hard, and that's the thing. Like Brenda's yeah, cool because she's just very unaffected. And, yeah. You know. And also, I think Yvonne, she's, it's interesting when you think about the sort of look that she's got. And because um, the Michael York's photographer takes a picture of her and puts her in the newspaper as somebody who's not with it, but they think they're 
they think they're with it. And which is kind she, of the and, film. Yeah. <laughs> which is interesting because you've got these two women and Rita Tushingham represents the sort of the new face of the 60s. Mm. Um, you know, obviously she became such a sort of well-known face along with Judy Christie. Yeah, she is and, one of the faces of the 60s, definitely. Yeah, it's like Judy Christie and Twiggy and these kind of women. Jean Shrimpton. Yeah. Yvonne's character is much more like Diana Dawes. She's like a traditional blonde, uh, well, sort of peroxide blonde, busty, miniskirt, slightly ill-fitting clothes that you would get in the early 60s. And so she's she's sort of physically not with it because she's been taken over by these much I more see where you're going yeah I mean I I don't think listeners can see Adrian doing the hand gestures to um <laughs> uh, get yeah. across the idea of busty <laughs> yeah no no oh no um but no so <laughs> I'm not expressing I'm not trying I'm not really getting that across very well but I do think it's interesting that the, the contrast between the two girls is like the, the it girl the it girl and the not it girl the uh yeah the sort of the star that was sort of the late 50s yeah. early 60s uh, yeah. archetypal uh, arch- archetypal um yes you know kind of female stardom uh has been superseded mm-hmm. by other kinds of stardom yeah. yeah and so that's great that then it's yvonne's face who gets she she falls in love with this photographer and he takes all these pictures and puts her in adverts and she becomes really yeah, famous. Yeah, he says, oh, I like your face. Or he says it yeah. in some kind of weird Cockney way. Um, oh. but, yeah. yeah, he's but he's so sleazy. He is very sleazy. He Especially he with his mustache. wig. Um, he's got a stick-on moustache yeah. and a wig. Um, but the, uh, did you find the film funny? Because it's meant to be a kind of funny film, isn't it? Well... It's quite slapsticky. Yes, how funny... You can laugh, I think, at one custard pie possibly two maybe not 300 maybe after the mm. 300th custard I mean, pie it gets a bit yeah gets and a bit I, I was looking yeah <laughs> i was looking i looked at quite a lot of reviews which i can mention later but several of them point out the fact that the the custard pie type stuff just goes on for far too long like we, we get are very scene, drawn out again they almost become yeah. avant-garde in how drawn out and shit they, they end up being <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I thought the like so the first one is in the cafe. Tracking shots of custard pies. <laughs> in the cafe, every bottle, the ketchup, the mustard, the washing up, the I don't know, probably the rat poison, they're all the same shape bottle. I mean, maybe that's just what it was like in the 60s. So there we start to get hilarious mix-ups of bottles. And then some other guys brought in loads of bottles of paint or something which are also the same and shape they, as the ketchup yeah. bottles and and so everyone starts pouring probably quite toxic stuff onto their food and starts squirting at each other and it just becomes this massive like jackson pollock type yes uh, that's it fight and that happens where, several times in the film yeah in other uh, scenarios like in uh, yeah. coffee shops with cakes and things <laughs> yeah so that me, yeah, because later on there's just a cus- big custard there's pie fight. It's a big fight, custard pie fight, which is, is really much explained. more. It's like the Three Stooges or something. Yeah. Um, I think I thought at least in this first one there's this kind of pop art element to it because it's all very multicolored. I mean, I love, I kind of love Rita Tushingham's sort of um, madcap humor in this i like the her kind mm. of um like she's sort of hopping around making funny faces and engineering things from the background and setting up gags yes. and things like she's really really funny in this film yeah um, and i and like she... that she gets to be funny <laughs> like she gets to yes. do that there's a scene later on when she has to rescue um yvonne 
from a uh, sleazy rich guy, Ian Carmichael, who is also a great comedian. He's really funny. Um, and she sneaks into his, she's dressed as a cat and she sneaks around his apartment. That reminded me a little bit, maybe just because I watched it again recently, but it reminded me of Amelie. Yes, Amelie I goes, was reminded of that as well. Yeah, when she goes around the apartment of the horrible greengrocer, mm. setting up gags that yeah, pay off later on. Yeah, it kind of is a on. bit like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but again, that turns into a big slapstick scene because she pours some kind of industrial strength, washing up liquid or something, into his bath. And so his bathroom just is full of bubbles and they're, they're everywhere. But he's also been given laxative in his brandy. It's the whole thing. Like it's it's it, As tedious as we're making it sound, it's even more tedious <laughs> on screen yeah. <laughs> to watch. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the whole room filling up with bubbles is a gag oh. that would be repeated later in um, at least one of the Confessions films. Uh, uh, I seem to remember. I don't remember. I've repressed those. Um, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to remember. The um, there are bits of kind of genuinely biting satire. Um, there's like a, there's mm. these exhibition where um, Brenda meets the photographer who's called Tom Wabe. And you may have noticed if you if you know your Lewis Carroll uh, that the names of the characters in the film are from the Jabberwock. You know the poem, the Jabberwock. So the photographer is called Tom Wabe. The landlady is called Miss Gimble. Um, there's a guy oh. called Mr. Tobe, who is the one who makes yes. uh, Yvonne famous. So there's these oh. nonsense words taken from the Jabberwock. That's funny. Do you know, I didn't notice that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brillig. There's Brillig, Brillig, yeah. And oh, um, there's the, just lots of ridiculous moments. Like there's the exhibition where uh, Tom Wave, the photographer, meets Brenda. There, there's kind of these robots, these animatronic mm. robots that this artist has kind of made. And they're running around, like, terrorizing yeah. everyone. Um, I mean, that's, that's a very 60s thing. That's thing's. really well, that 60s. Remind- that reminded me of something the Bonzo Dog Band used to do a lot. They would have ro- sort of handmade robots on stage that looked like that, mm-hmm. um, that would blow bubbles and stuff and not really do much else, but they kind of just move about a little bit. And I don't know whether that was a particular inspiration or, or I mean, maybe lots of other people. Maybe lots of other artists were making robots. But I quite like the idea that he'd programmed these robots to destroy and to kill people, um, and they would be fine unless he pressed this button or something and then Brenda accidentally causes the device to go off and they all just start attacking. But again, the, the problem with all of these, the problem with all of these kinds of sequences is they go on for much too long. Yeah. They're just slightly so, too, they're okay. They're like yeah. half a minute too long. I think. That sequence drag that just goes beyond humor and into <laughs> fairly quickly. Um, although I did like the kissing robot. There's a robot yeah. that just keeps trying to kiss her. Which is pretty funny. That is. Um, and it's just, it's a strange mix of like madcap, bizarre, uh, satirical, like really anarchic, but also really slow and really boring. Mm. It's like, a, it's a strange mm. mix of these things, these elements. Um, but the scene in the post office tower at the end, I think is like amazing. You know, where there's, it's, well, okay, I, I won't spoil it because people might not have seen it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're, they're kind of the bit that the kind of film leads up to. Um, yes. Uh, so it's, yeah, there's there's kind of moments of like quite sort of witty observational stuff um, kind of buried in there. Yeah, you mentioned that there are, there's quite a lot of satire, particularly, again, going back to Ian Carmichael's sleazy guy who picks up women. He picks up escorts in... Um, in this kind of nightclub, which happens to be Yvonne and takes her back to his, his flat 
I think he's got some kind of big villa out in the country somewhere and this is his town flat. Um, but I thought it was interesting when he goes into his flat and he's quite drunk, the um, the caretaker of the building is from his old regiment. And so there's a kind of... Um, it's quite satirical towards the officer class, that whole sequence, particularly as it turns out that this sergeant who's the caretaker, mm. he's only got one arm um, and he's very deferential to Ian Carmichael's character. But then it turns out he's actually spying on him through a hole in his ceiling. So he's watching. So he's, he spies on this guy with his latest dolly birds um, all the time. So he's very deferential on one hand, but then also very, um, what's the word? Like he hates him, I suppose, ultimately. <laughs> he just hates this guy, really. So I thought that was quite interesting because this was in the 60s. There's still quite a big hangover of the war. And there's still a lot of people around who were officers and, and so on because it's only 20 years previous. So anyway, I thought I quite liked that. His um, This sergeant who is the caretaker who really hates this guy and then is spying on him with his women. There is a film that came out around the same time called Wonderwall about this scientist who spies on a the dolly bird next door through a hole in his wall. Um, oh. And it's another really colourful, really over-the-top 60s film. Oh, there's a, okay. It's really like, there's a period of like from 66 to 68 or something. There's a bunch of very, very over-the-top, psychedelic, colourful mainstream mm. films about swinging London. But um, I find it really interesting that Smashing Time is considered was considered by reviewers to be at the sort of end, the tail end of that, or to kind of miss that, because it only came out in 67. And to me, mm. like 65, 66 to 68 is the highest swinging London. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it, this, and the, it kind of takes like two, a year or two years to kind of make a film from pre-production to post-production so it's like films are not going to really be on on part of this trend like the swinging london yeah. trend because they can't there is no time <laughs> it's too fast yeah <laughs> so yeah it was probably a good idea when when he wrote the script it's probably a great idea but then yeah, yeah two years later it was like this is gone <laughs> this has been and gone <laughs> nobody cares yeah. anymore it's very old <laughs> no. but yeah so I mean, like that guy that played the uh, the caretaker there that was david lodge I don't know if you recognise him from... He's in Corruption. No, I didn't. He's another another film from around this time. Mm. He, he plays one of the games. That's another really paternalistic, young people are doing yeah. stuff film, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> got... That's got scenes of sw people swinging and having parties and being really yeah. hip. I did the big play essay for, um, I think, mm. Indicator's release of that. It is. It's coming yeah. out soon. It's coming out it? soon. I, it was, yes. Yeah, I did the essay for it a couple of years ago, so I've kind of forgotten it a little bit. But, um, yeah. but it was a really kind of... Yeah, creepy, weird, fascinating, though. Yeah. fascinating film. Yeah, but that's one of the things I love about 60s movies is when they have young people having parties and we get to see <laughs> it, it, in really amazing so decadent, the space age. With their, their yeah. dancing and their, you know, yeah. um, 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 their, lying, their hair. Lying around, <laughs> playing guitars. Looking, looking kind of out of it, these young people. Yeah. These young people they have now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so those are always fun and we do get to see some parties in this one, which is good. But yeah, so read, so tell us your Rita Tushing um, story well, anyway, because she's okay, fired. just quickly because I think we should bring Mel on um, soon. But mm. okay, so my Rita Tushingham story was that we had this conference about sixties film a few years back at London South Bank at the BFI, and mm. we had Rita Tushingham as uh, a like a guest so for for one of the q and a's and um somehow we sort of ended up in the bar afterwards, and she was there um and we I sort of like ended up 
in the group with Rita Tushingham and we were having drinks and I was like oh my god and then I was like sitting next to Rita Tushingham um and she was just the warmest loveliest um uh lady just like the just really really nice and kind and really like actually listened to like when I was talking which is you don't it doesn't always kind of follow when you're kind of wankered at the end of a long day that that happens (laughs) um and it was just great and then um the conference finished and we all went went you know did our went our separate ways but I was kind of the researcher on that project and she sort of sent me something which was just like a an invoice for I guess the speaker fee or whatever Hmm. um but she sent it with a handwritten letter addressed to me like she'd gone out of her way to find out what my name was and written this letter which was you know a couple of pages saying how much she'd enjoyed it and it was like that is the sweetest thing like she didn't have to do that she could have just sent the invoice I'm I'm assuming you've got that yeah I've still got it yeah framed somewhere (laughs) I do have it or at least I hope I do since I kind of moved recently but well that's great I mean my only other story connected to who I've met from this movie is there's a brief wordless cameo from valerie leon in this movie she's the secretary of the sleazy record um, okay. producer and he just kind of pats her on the bum oh yeah right um, that, okay so that 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 was valerie leon in an early early role just before she became famous in the carry-on films but i interviewed her several years ago and she was very nice so um we could so we could go. let listeners decide which story um, yeah yours is the best. I'm, I'm calling it already <laughs> But that's, I think that's a new record for us. That's three people <laughs> in one film. That's not bad. But yeah, this what I do like about this movie is the number of famous faces that pop up. Either people who were at the prime of their careers or just British comedians who popped up in everything. Like Irene Handel is in this and she's brilliant in everything as the uh, grotty clothes, secondhand clothes mm. shop lady who... Um, who's just got this got all these Victorian clothes, yeah, and dusty like clothes Brenda and boxes. puts on the clothes really and funny. becomes really fashionable yeah. because she's wearing a nightgown from like 40 years ago and a velvet cape. Yeah. And obviously yeah. that means that she is the most fashionable person. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but that's, it's funny because that obviously the part of the whole swinging 60s thing was dressing in Victorian and yeah. clothes. And, and so she's perfectly dressed for that. Whereas... Yvonne is still all mini skirts and and she's just totally not with it anymore. Well, I um, I don't know if this is true. It's actually just from the Wikipedia page. But um, the private eye in this era here, the magazine used to call the Queen and Princess Margaret, Brenda and Yvonne. Hmm. Apparently, that's where they got the names for Brenda and Yvonne. Oh, Oh, this what? So the private eye thing came first. Yeah. Oh, I see. I thought you meant they named. I thought yeah, it was so from like this Brenda movie. Brenda and Yvonne in Smashing Time are like. Uh, I think those names are taken from the Queen and Princess Margaret as Brenda uh, and Yvonne. That makes yeah. that makes a lot of sense. There's um, there's a couple of other cameos um, that pop up. There's Kaju Robinson is in here, who was a very popular comedian back in the fifties. Um, quite irritating. I've seen other films with him in. I've never found him funny, but he inexplicably was very popular, and he he plays a a vicar who's preaching in the street and then gets a custard pie in the face and blames God. Which is, <laughs> Damn which you, is God. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> so that's quite funny. Um, but there's a, there are other quite interesting connections. Obviously the director is Desmond Davis. And so didn't he do other yeah he did other new wave films he did the girl with green eyes with rita tushingham Mm, and he did i was happy here with sarah miles um and he did a few other sort of 
60s films. I think the girl with green eyes is the more like uh, no. well-known one. Um, and he, he seems to have got his start in cinematography because he, he did camera on Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner uh, and yeah. a taste, and also interestingly, a taste of honey. So there's another so connection there. it's kind of coming there. out of that. Um, yeah. sort of era and it's kind of interesting that with those early 60s new wave films they're kind of about set in the north but some of them are about london or the opportunities that london presents like mm. billy liar for example is about yeah. like billy wants to go to london but never quite manages it um whereas you know the smashing time there's a lot there's not just smashing time but some kind of films towards the late 60s are about people from the north going to london and thinking it's a bit shit and just going back <laughs> home again yeah well i <laughs> I did think if Billy Liar, if there was a sequel to Billy Liar where he had, where yeah. he does come down to London, this would basically be pretty much his experience. Yes, and he'd go back home and, and be like, no, this is Because he's, this is he's coming down trying trying to be a successful comedy writer. <laughs> it all goes wrong. There's lots of custard, custard pie custard fights. Custard yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. um, Desmond Davis, most excitingly for me, he also directed Clash of the Titans. Oh, yes. So yeah. There you go, which is uh, one of my favourites. Uh, but anyway, people don't want to hear us just reading out the IMDb. Um, fun though that is. But yeah, there's a load of great people in here. And as I said, I think for me, the turning point of the film is when they do this, they make, they appear in this comedy hidden camera show and, you know, miraculously this happens to them just when they're, they've run out of money and then they get picked to be on this show and they win £10,000. And so... Yvonne decides to spend all this money becoming a pop star. And that, for me, is when the film suddenly got a lot better. To that point, I was still finding it quite annoying. <laughs> Can um, it be straight? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that song that uh, Brenda... Not Brenda. That song that Yvonne does when she becomes a pop star. Oh, it's really good. It's I actually like really good. Yeah, it's called I yeah. Can't Sing But I'm Young. I Can't Do a yeah. Thing But I'm Young. Yeah, I really liked that. And I liked the, the recording of it. I thought was really funny because there was so much, if this was, I don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but um, they're in this recording studio and the band are huge. And you just keep getting more and more shots of more and more people playing instruments. There's like about 50 people in there on this record and you can't hear her singing at all. Mm. She's just being completely drowned out. Because she can't sing. Thought, well, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so I thought that was going to be the joke that her voice is not even going to be on the record. But then you hear the song back and actually she is. And she can sing. She sounds great, uh, pretty much. But yeah, I really liked that. And I think for me, that whole, once it became, maybe it's just the satire was very scattershot, I thought, before. There's like jokes about Carnaby Street and blah, blah, mm. blah. But once I could fix on the music industry being the bad guys, 
I was I was I was in. <laughs> I felt like there was much more of a solid yeah. sort of structure yeah. to it. And um, it was quite episodic before that, but now I felt it's not a swinging sixties film if it's not there's not some kind of industry pop music advertising mm. being sort of um, yeah rubbished <laughs> or mm-hmm. being sort of uh, satirized. Yeah. Um, we haven't mentioned uh, Tushingham in the knack and how to get it either, which I might talk. But actually, we might kind of bring Mel on and talk yeah. about kind of some of those uh, youth films, swinging films, uh, mm. those kind of quintessential sixties swinging London films. Yeah. Another face that you see in films all the time in this period is Anna Quayle, who plays the um, the rich girl who owns a boutique where she doesn't want to sell anything. Oh yeah, which I thought was really funny. Yeah, and of course she she was in Eskimo Nell, so there's another callback. I never remember this stuff. Film. I don't know how you do. I just can never draw these connections. It's just it's... well, what what amused me particularly is that there are two people in this film who later ended up on Grange Hill, and she she's one of them. And also the Irishman that they meet at the beginning, who's drunk, yeah. and they follow. They think they're following him to Carnaby Street. Um, but they're following him to Camden Street. Yeah, <laughs> he, he was the he was the caretaker in, in Grange Hill. So if you're the right age and you watched Grange Hill every week, he's I'm not the right age. I'm just no, just slightly too young, like a couple of years, but still <laughs> too young. But um, but yeah, he was a great. He was a caretaker, and she was a teacher. So. Uh, I've got quite fond memories of both of them. So it was nice to see them pop up as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the film is just, it's just cameo after cameo after cameo, which maybe is a, was a, probably meant people only had to come in and work for a day or two days. And... That might be why, actually, yeah. Hey, I do love your accent. It's so tuned in. Do I call you a ladyship too? Of course not. I'm only an honourable anyway. I'm called Charlotte Brillig. Call me Charlotte. My name's Brenda. How super! I don't think I've ever met anyone called Brenda before. So um, today we have a very special guest and I'm very excited to introduce Professor Melanie Williams from the University of East Anglia. Uh, Now, we actually, I was a postdoc on a project uh, about the history of British cinema in the 1960s uh, with Melanie and with Duncan Petrie and Richard Farmer. And we, we spent like three years researching, um, you know, British cinema in the 60s, going to archives and all that stuff. And that's how I ended up seeing Smashing Time to begin with. And it came it became something of a, a film that we just reference all the time on that project because it's just so, you know, batshit. <laughs> and it was just such a kind of 60s film. Um, so I guess, yeah, first things first. Uh, Mel, when did you first see Smashing Time and what was your reaction initially? Do you remember? Yeah, I, I, I... I first saw it, I think I first read about it in um, Robert Murphy's book on 60s British cinema. Um, and it was, it, it sounded kind of intriguing. Um, so I, I sort of caught up with it then. Um, and it's, one reviewer talked about it as like the carry on team doing like carry on darling. So it's this oh, yeah. like mashup of a certain kind of British comedy, sort of farcical, slapstick, innuendo laden, with uh, a sort of more satirical take on swinging London of the sort of mid 1960s. So it's it's kind of the the point where Carry On films and and Darling meet, and that seemed like a very good description 
Yeah, and it's one of the things I think is really interesting about it is that it was not a film that was was very well received at the time. It was seen as quite kind of old hat and missing the joke and missing the point. Um, whereas I think it it stands up really well as a as a satire of that kind of odd moment in British culture and in in British cinema. I think it's I think it's funny and it's nice to see. Uh, two female leads really um, in a British film of that yeah. time mm. doing comedy as well um, like they are a kind of duel aren't they they're, they're, a, they're yeah. a double act so you, you mentioning the um, the kind of contemporary reception I was doing a bit of digging around to see if I could find any like to find out what people thought about it at the time obviously there's the the standard monthly film bulletin review and of course they which is know, very snooty isn't it yeah oh, never knowingly with a sense of <laughs> <No>. humor <laughs> but I, I tried some of the more regional I was interested to see what um some you know particularly I was really looking for any reviews from the north in, in inverted commas to see it because you know they're kind of played particularly Lynn Redgrave's character is kind of a bit dim and brassy and she looks like she's come from behind the bar of the rover's return or something and so what did you know, i was wondering what they thought of it the closest i could get was the liverpool echo um which i think and i think reach touchingham was from liverpool so yeah that's right yeah but even they are they, there's a very long review in the liverpool echo 1967 but um they're not that impressed either um well but i just read for you the beginning because it's quite funny um it says it depends really on your attitude to custard pies if you savor that moment when the outraged victim slowly wipes the gooey mess from his eyes and then at short range slaps a full platter into the face of his attacker then i have a film for you if not <laughs> not <laughs> oh, that's good yeah. i, I could... suppose that there are quite a lot of food fight secrets well there's a oh, couple of goodness. big extended food fight sequences yeah. you know so there's a, a, a one with in a cafe at the beginning that has lots of um sort of ketchup and paint and all sorts mm. being sprayed around um and then there is a big custard pie fight later on um, yeah i mean a few of the reviews talk about how it's funny for the first minute but it's not funny for 10 minutes you know what? I think if it's good enough for Laurel and Hardy, it's, yeah. it's good but, enough for me. Yeah, I mean, she, um, at least one of these reviews um, did actually compare them to Laurel and Hardy, like the female, they call them the female Laurel and Hardy. Um, oh, which well, that's interesting. Nice. Like, yeah, I think that's the, the Daily Mirror. So like you were saying, is, is having a female comedy double act is not that common, in that, particularly then. And, and, they, uh, and they're quite sort of physically different as well. And a lot of mm. comedic play is made out of the fact that Ling Redgrave kind of towers over mm. Rita Tushingham and they're, they're sort of played as quite different characters. And it's interesting coming from uh, the previous film that they're in together, um, Girl with Green Eyes, where they mm. play this kind of slightly mismatched pair of best friends who you know, one is more daring than the other and the other's a little more reticent. And this is kind of taking that friendship and transposing it into this London setting. Into but it's, it's, de it's definitely part of that whole thing of, you know, going down to London, as the title song talks about, and seeking your fortune, which is there in, you know, so many British films of, of that period from 
from Billy Liar, or at least the prospect of it in mm. Billy Liar onwards. So that idea of a migration to the capital where it's all happening. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking about this because there is a sort of change from the mid-60s where at the start of the decade people are going from the north to London to seek their fortune and then by the end of it people are buggering off back to the north because they're like this is a bit rubbish isn't it? Um, I wonder where Smashing Time fits in all that like is it one of the first films to be like oh no the south is quite crap isn't it? <laughs> let's, yeah. head, let's head back north. <laughs> Everything's a bit better it's a bit less kind of superficial up there. <laughs> I love this idea that they sort of come down to London and have all these adventures and then realise they've still got their return tickets and actually London's not all it's cracked up to be and they've kind of done everything that they can possibly do so mm. so they decide to to go back home it's like a sort of reverse Dick Whittington and it's interesting that it's you know a year later that you've got something like Charlie Bubbles where you've got another thing where some a northerner makes it big in London and then mm. makes this homeward journey and even things a bit later on like The Reckoning and Get Carter are all about this as you were saying Laura this sort of return back to the north but this whole sort of um, back and forth this whole back and forth between between London and the North, which mm. is not always kind of distinguished as distinct regions. It's kind of seen yeah. as this monolithic. Um, There's this binary, isn't there? And it's like the North is actually half the country and it comprises quite a lot of cities. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd, but in cinema, yeah, you see this sort of North-South binary. Yeah, and a similar thing, you were mentioning other examples about, I think about, uh, was it in 1970, Call It Carol? Oh, that's the Pete, oh, no. the Pete oh, Walker film is kind of a similar thing. They, they come to London, have a fun time. It all goes wrong. I don't think Carol has a fun time. Well, I mean, they have fun initially, but then it all goes wrong. And then she ends leave. up being a prostitute. And yeah, then what, yes. up, they end up back at the start. But like, then they just sort of leave. Happened. Yeah, they leave, they leave fairly unscathed, which we see in this film as well. At the end, their friendship is intact. And they just, they go home and it's like nothing ever happened. But, and even though they've been uh, kind of national celebrities in the media, I mean, there is that interesting bit near the beginning where they get jobs as hostesses, which mm. is, you know, clearly presented as on a, on a continuum with prostitution of some kind. Um, <laughs> but they, they, you know, they go on to, well, Yvonne, which is one of the characters wins this prize money from a quiz show and then invests that in her musical career. So she becomes a pop star, who's a kind of big sensation for a brief mm. period. And um, Brenda, the other girl, uh, is spotted as a model. So she becomes the face of all these kind of um, beauty products and, and goods and uh, is, appears in a TV commercial for a, a perfume called Direct Action. So I think it's definitely George Melly's script is poking fun at the idea yeah. of radical chic, you know, it's, at the same time that Tom Wolfe yeah, like, is satirising that as well. It's not very well. subtle, is it? No, not at all. <laughs> if you're looking for subtlety, this is not the film for you. But if you're looking at looking for sort of broad brush, good humoured satire of all that paraphernalia and nonsense that comes with the sort of idea of swinging London. Yeah and that idea, idea of like co-opting activism and using it to sell things is quite a feels like quite a modern thing um, and the 
like yeah the kind of satire part of the film I guess like some of the comedy is really old-fashioned but the satire is of like pop pop stars advertising uh these sort of growing industries um that are kind of sucking the life out of young people and just turning them into like you know yeah um adverts basically <laughs> to sell products what's what's nice as well is that that Yvonne and Brenda managed to sort of maintain their integrity yeah they do in spite they? of this they they I mean, they, they, they are enchanted by it and they enjoy the experience of it, but they also maintain enough critical distance that they, mm. they, they know when to get out, you know, while the yeah. going is good. Um, after they've effectively sort of destroyed the post office tower and cover... Oh, that's more custard, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? There's, there's more kind of... There's so much fights. custard. There's so much food. Um, so much slapstick. I would love to see the custard budget for this yeah. production. That I, mean, would I, be... I think even the carry-on team could only afford one custard pie fight per film. Well, they were famously... Yeah. Well, the producer mean. was very, very mean and cheap. Like, he yeah. didn't pay people properly. Yeah. <laughs> if if, if he people. could have used second-hand custard from this film, he yes. probably would yeah. have. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so, yeah, to, uh, the reviews, I was just kind of looking through and Adrian very helpfully uploaded loads of reviews, actually, um, for me to look at. Thank you, Adrian. Okay. <laughs> uh, but nobody liked it. Like, nobody liked it. I could not find a single review of people liking this film. It was, the consensus was that it was kind of too, too much custard, really, basically, was the sense I got. Um, <laughs> I, I think people need to need to look beyond the custard I think they were, yeah. they were dazzled by the custard and they didn't get see under that crust you know but yeah the subs because <laughs> and one of the things that I, I think was was really interesting for me when I, I sort of first watched the film is that George Melly writes it now to me growing up when I did George Melly was a sort of fat man in loud suits who used mm. to sing trad jazz on mm. Pebble Mill at one um, so very kind of niche celebrity. And I had no idea until much later on that he was a very uh, kind of important and respected art critic. He writes this fantastic book called Revolt Into Style, which is all about understanding kind of the interplay between art and popular culture in the 60s. Mm. And he yeah, has some fantastically sort of perceptive stuff. And he's writing for The Observer and other publications at this time. And but also is involved in writing this screenplay. So it's someone who's got a very keen eye on what is going on at that point in the 1960s. And, you know, I think it's so interesting as well that this is the film that Carlo Ponti produces after Blow Up, because in a sense, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, they both are focused on this this notion of swing in London which may or may not exist as a phenomenon yeah. but one's all sort of arty murders in parks and the other's all custard. Yeah it's weird isn't it because Blow Up is a satire but a very sort of like tr uh, intelligent one I guess like trying yeah trying to be quite arty if you like. Um, so a Smashing Time takes the like the sort of the lowest common denominator of comedy <laughs> and pop culture. It just mines, mines the past in terms of this music hall, um, which is a very sort of working class uh, type of comedy, mm. um, slapstick kind of physical stuff. Uh, so yeah, they're totally opposites, but produced at the same time by the same person. That's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's a sign of how 
there is this really deep cultural fascination with with London at this point and it becomes a real magnet for international talent and interest and you get that peak in 1968 of US investment in UK production which obviously Laura we talked about in our 60s project quite a bit yes. didn't we this this you know um inward investment particularly from the states but also um Europe as well um and the idea of Britain but particularly London as the subject of this kind of real um sort of interest and enchantment almost um on the part of cultural producers and it you know it obviously comes from things like Beatlemania and but but there's you know there's something else going on as well and it's just mm. at that point because of the time lag with investment and film production and then film release it's just at that point when the the pendulum is swinging back really to to the United States so it's just at the point that London isn't sort of swinging anymore and you're starting to look a yeah. bit tired and a bit naff and a bit worn out. Like that happens so quickly though right because it starts in like 64, 65 and then by this but by like 67 people are like oh it's done and I think I was making this point earlier to you Adrian when I said that film producers one, they always try to understand young people, but they're always middle-aged men who get it wrong because it's just, mm. you know, it's hilariously bad. But two, the, yeah, the turnover of film production is like, it will take maybe a year to a year and a half from like script, if you're lucky, script stage to finished film being released. Um, and in that time, all of Swinging London has happened. It's all just, it's all happening. It's all happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's really, really hard to keep up with this stuff, right? To notice what the trends are and then to, especially to satirize them because satire is meant to be really sort of present and contemporary mm -hmm. social commentary. Um, so I kind of see why people saw Smashing Time as being a bit just like just missing the boat. But also at the same time, I think it was weird that that whole Swinging London thing took place in like two years. Yeah, and then it's <laughs> it, it effectively um evaporated really yeah. i mean that there's there's a there's a whole section of the film that is satirizing sort of boutique culture and there's a fantastic song about carnaby street i love that song which I is like quite memorable i mean a lot of the tunes in it are, are very memorable and catchy yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 most of the reviews they say like you said they get hung up on the custard pie fights they don't mention that this is a musical particularly um, yes. But the, the use of music in the film is interesting because for the most part, I think until the ending and also her pop song that she gets in the charts with, we're mostly just hearing their thoughts. It's like they're singing their, their duel in a monologues or something. But the, the music to me doesn't seem particularly swinging. I mean, by, by sort of 67, 68, we've got stuff like Pink Floyd happening and you know, we've moved on from sort of music hall, but this, maybe it's because of George Melly's jazz background, the music feels quite old fashioned. Yeah, that might be the, I mean, but you have to also think, you know, what is one of the biggest hits of the following year? It's, it's Oliver. So it's sort of Lionel Bart's musical True. put on film. Um, and what's, what are the kind of big successes in film a couple of years before and it's things like the sound of music so there's mm. maybe a sort of interesting attempt to do something that that works in terms of contemporary pop music but also works as a 
kind of you know more traditional musical in the way that Lionel Bart is kind of balancing those two different um, those two different aims, I suppose. Mm. I think the song that Yvonne sings, you know, her big hit. Um, I like that. Yeah. It, you know, it's really well produced and it and it feels very much like a, a sort of mid sixties pop song mm. um, it's and it's hilarious. very catchy yeah, it's like it's, it's catchy it's hilarious like i can't do anything literally but i'm young so yeah. you know therefore I, I love the way <laughs> we, we see that being recorded and the camera just keeps going around the studio and there's like a hundred musicians in there which again it feels it feels like this is more like something from like you said mid 60s i'd say sort of earlier like 1964 65 rather than 67 when music is changing and Obviously, we've had, again, Sergeant Pepper and all this kind of stuff. And the kind of girl singer with a massive band behind her feels like that's already a couple of years out of date by the time this came out. But I but do that, like the song. It's my but then it's bit. also got those kind of like um, weird instruments, you know. Yeah. So the idea of let's bring in an orchestra and let's have them do wacky things actually mm. feels quite contemporaneous with, with Sergeant Pepper. Um, yeah, isn't there a sitar in... Yeah, yeah, there I think is, there yeah. is. Yeah, there's, you know, all, all, so that's and, true. Yeah, uh, having them all in their sort of like dinner jackets, but then doing experimental things. When you look at the the sort of footage of the recording of uh, a day in the life, it's there's some interesting parallels there. Mm, okay, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, there's this mix of old and new in terms of um, the late 60s, you know, like the there's that boutique in, was it Carnaby Street called Granny Takes a Trip, where it's yes. just Victorian clothes blended with modern styles. And essentially, like in fashion, in film and music and pop music, this kind of ma mashup of old, old, the old and the Victorian and the Edwardian and the modern was kind of happening a little bit. Well, that, that's what happens. Um, I mean, uh, Yvonne is all kitted out in this sort of plasticated Mary Quant PVC miniskirt stuff. So she's very uh, kind of mid 60s, I'd say, yeah. in her, her aesthetic. Whereas Brenda, who falls in a puddle, another kind of slapstick moment, um, ends up buying something secondhand but then that becomes celebrated as this very chic vintage aesthetic so it's 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 got interesting things going on in terms of how 60s fashion is is developing mm. as well and that's the thing that gets her spotted by the photographer Tom Wave played by Michael York mm. and that becomes the thing that catapults her to stardom that she like looks different Kind of wanted to ask you about that um, point about how they look, um, you know, Lynn Redgrave and Rita Tushingham, because uh, Mel, you did your book, Female Stars of British Cinema. You had a chapter on Rita Tushingham, right? And yeah. about how she was um, her stardom and also how she was sort of described in the press. Because one of the things that came out of these reviews was how they lingered on Lynn Redgrave as this buxom blonde you know it was all really sexist descriptions obviously but then <laughs> Rita Tushingham is described as having these massive eyes this expressive face and um yeah I just wanted to ask you if like you watch Smashing Time with that in mind well it was nice to have a chance to re-watch it um with that particular perspective in mind so um I mean her sort of development in her career in the 60s is really interesting because it it mirrors that movement from the emphasis being on the north to the emphasis being on London so you've got obviously her breakthrough role in A Taste of Honey which is you know part of that whole canon of kitchen sink British New Wave films set in the north 
But then as she appears in more films, the, the, the next kind of big landmark film for her is The Knack, which again is about a northern girl coming down to London on the coach and looking for sort of fun and adventure and, and love. And it's got that kind of sort of studied wackiness that, that comes with sort of Richard Lester in this period. So it's between his two films that he makes with the Beatles, Hard Day's Night and Hell. Yeah, that, the opening credit sequence of that film uh, with all those girls going up the stairs and into the guy's room, it's like a horrible weird kind of nightmare it's really interesting that's the 60s for yeah, you isn't it really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that idea of how you find a place for yourself as a sort of young woman a young mm. single woman within this you know uh, kind of hothouse of supposed permissiveness that oh. actually isn't all that permissive yeah well, it's more permissive for some than others there's that um, bit as well where the girls are at the school having a PE lesson and you get a shot of all these men by the school gate just oh, staring over the gate dirty old, the men in dirty old men in like, what, <laughs> what is this film <laughs> it's, it's I mean it's 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 a film that's sort of come in for criticism subsequently um I think it's it's very interesting on the whole uh, the kind of uneven experience of the permissive society and how it works differently for different kinds of women, different kinds of men. Um, and it's also this kind of like this style of um, offbeat comedy, um, which is sort of prepping us really for something like Smashing Time, which is quite farcical, but is also about uh, a kind of young woman finding her feet in in London but not on her own this time she's there with her friend instead and there's a there's a slightly later film she makes um called Straight On Till Morning which again is about her playing a young northern woman who comes to London but this time it's a horror film about a serial yeah. killer so there's um there's a whole interesting Rita Tushingham goes to London subgenre <laughs> going very, on yeah she's very typecast isn't she <laughs> it's always in that role there's this sort of recurrent situations that she seems to be placed in I mean obviously she's in lots of different kinds of films as well but yeah, she um, was in The Trap was it The Trap with all yes the that's okay yes. So she's not a northern girl come to London she's no. a mute and she, girl and she's living. in Dr Zhivago so yeah. she's in in these kind of big colour kind of adventure films as well but then but also clearly a, a, a talent for comedy as well which mm. is then sort of spotted and and exploited by different yeah different I really, producers I really liked her scene in this film where she's dressed as the bunny girl and she's scrambling around um under the bed in um in Ian Carmichael's apartment and all that but yeah her she's so expressive oh yeah definitely I mean I, I think both her and Lynn Redgrave have got a real talent for that kind of you know physical comedy which is actually really hard to to do well and to be mm. funny in um and playing off against each other and it's it's nice that they they also seem to have been very good friends as well so they really enjoyed working together you get that sense of you know a, a kind of real friendship behind this sort of farcical facade that that you see but yeah you, but, you yeah that energy don't you they're friends 
but I, I love the the fact that this you've got their central performances but then you've also got the film populated with all these other um different kinds of british performers so you mentioned ian carmichael as this sort of mm. sleazy upper crust oh, playboy he's so good <laughs> He gets his comeuppance, you know, yeah. when he tries to um, seduce a poor, uh, drunken, misguided uh, Lynn Redgrave. He, mm -hmm. he gets his comeuppance via bubble bath and, and laxatives, which is <laughs> pretty serious stuff. It's a horrible mix. It's never good, is it? <laughs> Worse than the custard, definitely. Yeah. Um, but you've got people like Arthur Mullard, like um, Anna Quayle, who plays oh, the... Her. She is brilliant as the yeah. posh boutique owner. Um, yeah. Too much. Um, <laughs> too much. And um, one of the things that you don't necessarily notice as well is the play on Jabberwocky. So yeah. all of the characters' names relate to lines in, in Lewis Carroll's poem, Jabberwocky. So mm. there's a real fad for Lewis Carroll in the 60s. So, you know... Um, John Lennon's poetry is very influenced by it um, and also lyrics as well. And there's that famous Jonathan Miller BBC adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, which is kind of immensely influential on sort of psychedelic aesthetics as well. Mm. So it's interesting that the film is sort of plugging into that, that fascination with Lewis Carroll at, at I mean, that it's, point. It's interesting you mentioned Jonathan Miller, because I think didn't, um, wasn't George Melly only wrote one other film? Mm. That was directed by Jonathan Miller, I think. Yeah, Kingsley Amis adaptation, Take a Girl Like You, which, which again also... is 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 criticised for being, you know, out of time because mm. it's a book that's sort of set sort of towards the end of the fifties, and so... it's all about this girl trying to kind of keep her virginity. Isn't she Another also a girl, girl. Who comes to London. She comes yeah, to, she travels down from the north to get a job or something. It's like it's this idea of innocence, <laughs> yeah, northern yeah. innocence um, being besieged by all these different forces of sort of permissive culture. Um, but in both cases, the girls manage well, uh, trying very hard to maintain a sense of their own kind of independence and, and integrity. It's, it's an interesting focus, I think. Um, especially as you say, since George Malley didn't didn't do an awful lot of film stuff, so mm. it's an interesting link between the two. Are there any films that we could talk about from this period that are similar in theme, but written or directed by women, or is it all men telling stories of girls coming to the big? British city? cinema, though, I don't know if there's a lot of <laughs> female-directed vehicles in the sixties yeah. either. Well, I mean, yeah, of any any kind, but or even just written by or just. It's obviously, this is clearly a girl's experience through a male lens. Yeah. And I just wondered if there was any kind of alternative to that or not really at this time. Yeah, I mean, oh dear. Well, as Laura <laughs> suggests, it's, you know, there's not a lot of, there's certainly not a great deal of female there is like Directors. one, <clears throat> there is Sparrows, wasn't Sparrows Can't Sing directed? Yeah, that's Joan Littlewood. Yeah, John Littlewood. You've got the sort of tail end of Muriel Box's career at the beginning of the 60s and you've got a little bit of Wendy Toys stuff, but it's so interesting that the 50s, which is usually seen as less progressive for women, mm. is when 
they were able to have careers whereas in yeah. the 60s that's that's much harder for them um I think if you look at women writers I think a, a different picture starts to emerge although very often then you've got male screenwriters adapting women's mm. novels um with varying degrees of success and sympathy so you've got things like the pumpkin eater which is pinter uh, adapting penelope mortimer's novel or peter nichols adapting margaret forster's georgie girl um but you've also got like nell dunn's work is really important although it's sort of slightly different dynamic given that she's quite posh and she goes to slummer in battersea but the stuff that comes out of that up the junction um and poor cow i mm. think you're you're getting some different kinds of voices sort of permeating into into british cinema but it's but it's interesting that there's there's not so much scope for for women to direct i ought to mention sheila delaney as well but you know her film career is kind of truncated but you know it's interesting that charlie bubbles has a male protagonist as mm. a sort of jaded northerner going back home and sort of managing their reputation as a professional northerner so it's as much about albert finney's experience and reputation as it is about her own mm. um her own experiences so yeah. women writers writing through male characters and women writers work being adapted by men you're kind of seeing things through different yeah. lens I think when you broaden the focus away from, like to beyond the director towards yeah writers costume designers um screenwriters a different uh, picture of women's labor in the industry emerges in that time and you can kind of see those influences um I think we are very focused on directors and in British cinema up to a certain point uh, they were men. <laughs> like they're they're all men, mostly. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to like re, like think about how we think about creativity. Um, refocus how we actually see creativity because yeah. it's not really necessarily about the director. Um, how those voices emerge. No, I mean the, the director's important, the writer's important, but there are other people feeding into that. That you know that sense of an authorial voice and I think it's a sometimes... film historian thing to say isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah and undercutting uh... things I think you know the the research that I did around the the film Darling and you've got a male director and a male writer in particular um Frederick Raphael and they have a very particular view of their female protagonists which is kind of complicated and undercut by what the star is doing julie christie but also julie harris doing the costumes which are kind of make suggesting a much more complex characterization of of that that woman than you get in the script the script is always trying to kind of dismiss her whereas um they kind of make her into a more interesting aspirational character almost in spite of mm. what's written in the screenplay so yeah, I, th I think as well with such a style-focused decade like like the '60s, looking at things like production design and costume design is so important because you know the the, the style and the look of the films is such a crucial part of how yeah, they're communicating meaning. Yeah, 
And um, I mean, you've written about stardom, but you've also written about fashion and costume design in this decade um, and people like Julie Harris. Uh, so um, yeah, it's the idea of how that creativity comes across, I guess. And like Smashing Time is such a fashion film, like you said, like the whole Mary Quant thing, like um, Lynn Ray uh, Gray's character being seen as passe because she's wearing a miniskirt versus uh, Rita Tushigam's wearing a Victorian nightie. <laughs> it's just, it's such a huge part of like 60s, I'm doing air quotes, like 60s swinging London yeah. films, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, the fact that it's sort of referring to Carnaby Street as a as a phenomenon within the film itself, yeah. you know, at length, repetitively through the lyrics of. I'm not going to do but, it again. I was, I was singing it earlier. I won't do it again. But it, you've you, then you've also got the the kind of the footage from Carnaby Street, which is you know I think this might be why the film wasn't very well received at the time. I think when you look at things like Look at Life and Pathé Pictorial and you know, every man and his dog took their cameras to Carnaby Street and the King's Road to film documentary stuff, which would then kind of go out and every TV reporter got themselves there to kind of record the new scene. So by the time you've got the same kind of stuff in Smashing Time, I, I can see that people think, oh God, not this again. You know, it's, it's stale. Whereas if you're coming to it from the perspective of 20, 30, 40 years later, you're not bored with it in the same way. It just no, you're feels... like, this is great. This is amazing. <laughs> this is so creative. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's it it just feels like a very, a very sharp um, take on all of that sort of hypocritical, class-ridden nonsense. I think it's lovely that Charlotte Brulig, who runs the boutique is actually very very posh and mm. it, it gives the lie to this idea of you know social mobility and, and this was you know and Tom Wabe is clearly based on David Bailey this idea of a mm. sort of cockney photographer and you know when you look at documentaries like My Generation the Michael Caine front of thing um, obviously Caine has his own take on this as a working class boy made good in the 60s and certainly there were opportunities for greater social mobility than in other periods but the idea that this wasn't still dominated by ons and debs and yeah it's not a meritocracy types. is it um and not i thought that I thought that boutique, the sort of Sloan Ranger owning a boutique and just being able to do what she wants is just, that was, that was oh, really yeah. sharp, actually. I thought, actually, this, this film understands class and it's kind of gently satirising this idea that the 60s is a classless society and we're hearing working class accents now, so therefore everything's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, liked, I liked how, you know, she was annoyed that, that Rita Tushingham had sold stuff because... That wasn't really what the shop was for. It's so passe, like, darling. You can't sell have, things. She's going to have to just buy it all back again. <laughs> yeah. If you um, sell the stock, you know, your friends, yeah. or if you make people buy things, your friends won't want to hang out there. It's lovely as well that you've got Murray Melvin and Paul Danqua from yeah. The Taste of Honey turning up as the as the customers yeah. in this, this fancy boutique. But yeah, I mean, so much of it, the sort of the reality television, the manufactured pop, the sort of, pointless shops that sell kind of you know exotic tat um it, some of that feels very very kind of relevant and contemporary mm. even though it's also very very 60s at the same time 
So yeah. why why isn't this film more readily available? Why can't we buy this on Blu-ray from the BFR? I don't know. Or, or uh, why don't... is it neglected? I don't know. I mean, I think availability and neglect, uh, it's always like a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Because you're going to be neglected if you're not available. It's a film that you can access on YouTube fairly yeah. easily. And it's, and it's a film that's been sort of back in circulation. So it's been on television, on Talking Pictures TV, you know, where all the great films are. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's contractual stuff um, or... I don't know. Like it's not had it's... a Bells and Whistles Blu-ray Blu release in the UK, I don't think. But no. that might be contractual or it might just be that people prioritise cult and horror films more than they prioritise stuff like Smashing Time. Possibly, Tiny. yeah. It's sort of not outre enough for the, the kind of flip side label mm. that the BFI run, but it's maybe not. But then, you know, you look at, what is on DVD and Blu-ray and what is more readily yeah. available and you think well this is you know if you're interested in the 60s if you you know are interested in British cinema this it's is a very important film isn't it yeah it's, yeah. it's an absolute yeah treasure trove of, of stuff um, and I think it does stand up really well and it's nice that it's got two women at the centre of it yeah. as well when they're often there as kind of brutalized foils in other mm. British films, or they're the butt of the joke in comedies of that period. Whereas here, there is a bit of that, but also they kind of get to- They get to be comic actors. They get yeah. to have time and they get to be funny and they get to have range and that's, yeah. Yeah, I think we should lobby for a release. Yes, yeah. let's start the campaign here. Definitely. I think uh, some sort of you know, custard pie launch yeah. seems like the best possible <laughs> way of celebrating the film yeah with a with a soundtrack release so we can sing along at home i would the, buy that film I'm, i don't have any skills but i'm young that um i would buy that yeah. song <laughs> that's, that's 60s neophilia in, in a, a nutshell it's absolutely spot on you know the mm -hmm. fascination with youth and manufactured pop and it's it's got it all it's it's a smart film with yeah. catchy tunes for for me i know we're trying to wrap things up here and i keep saying more things but for me i was really not enjoying the movie for the first kind of 15 20 minutes or so but once it got to the music scene thing that's when it went up for me and i was like ah now i get it and that whole once it got onto the music industry satire i was on board <laughs> beforehand <laughs> I, I was struggling a little bit I haven't even mentioned Michael York's horrible wig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to mention that? Can I mention, can I mention <laughs> Michael York's horrible wig? Yeah. Oh, it's awful. And he's got one of those like Zapata moustache things going on as well. It's, yeah. it's yes. not that, terribly flattering. Doesn't he also stick that on as well? It's like yeah, part, I think it's, it's all, it's all fake, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the sort of yeah. photographer look. Which I suppose, again, it, it's a little bit kind of Beatles when they had pretty rubbish moustaches around yes. that time didn't they but yeah i think it is it does suffer from that difficulty of if you're trying to satirize something that is all about a moment of intense fashionability inevitably that moment passes and everybody moves on to something else so how can you kind of pin that down and mm. satirize it without looking like you're behind the times as well and i don't yes. think it it solved that, but it kind of solves it in retrospect because we're not in that moment anymore. So we can kind of take a longer view, I suppose. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I was kind of thinking about this, uh, like blow up and smashing time. Very similar, but also very different films. But essentially the difference, I think for me is partly the difference is that smashing time is trying really hard to make its point, but blow up is very unaffected and cool and doesn't really care if you like it because, you know, I think it's, there's that kind of difference. Um, like smashing yeah. time is like trying to make you get the references, you know, like the Jabberwocky stuff and trying to kind of be really overtly funny. <laughs> and that's just not cool, is it? <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's also, you know, it, it connects the sort of fashionable 60s culture with the lowbrow 60s culture, whereas blow up is much, much more kind of, well, I suppose it's kind of Antonioni, isn't it? So it's all about a kind of anomie and alienation. And, um, but it doesn't draw the, the line of connection between the fashionable photographers and models and the likes of Arthur Mullard working in a cafe or Peter Jones being a TV host on this tacky uh, candid camera style show but actually you know thinking about 60s pop culture it's 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 got that kind of mix of the lowbrow and the and the more highbrow and that's not there in no it's 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 very much absent and it's very much about this you know kind of very small selection of ultra cool people who are suffering these kind of weird crises um whereas this is much more engaged with the kind of tacky mainstream and i think it's it's kind of a better picture of what the 60s are like because of that yeah absolutely and i love that connection to lowbrow culture and to historical british comedy thank you so much uh for joining us and for all that that was all great i think that was all gold i don't yes. want to edit any of that adrian oh, <laughs> and we just leave it as is no cool thanks for asking all right when we came to london when we came to london we thought we'd have a smashing time because we'd never been on the scene London, when we got to London, we had the love to crash and climb. We had a single stop to the top. We made the grave in London town. We were always given the table. Everybody knew who we were, so why weren't we able to stop feeling blue? Uh, thanks for listening everyone uh, and I have really enjoyed revisiting Smashing Time uh, with Adrian and uh, yes. our special guest Melanie Williams uh, so uh, yeah I'd like to thank my guest and my co-host and all of the listeners who um, hopefully are as invested in this film as I am <laughs> <laughs>
and, yes. and I've stayed at the podcast until the very, very bitter end. Um, uh, we have some, we, um, yes, we have to remind people about what our Twitter handle is, don't we, Adrian? Um, it's uh, at Second Features. Yeah, and second you can features. tweet us if you want to chat mm-hmm. about anything we've talked about today. Um, and we are also, uh, you can also email us. What's our email? I never remember. Second Features Pod. Is it? Oh no, yeah. Second features pod at gmail.com. Second features pod at gmail.com. Cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you have comments or suggestions, and if you actually, if you want to suggest uh, future films that we could mm. kind of um, chat about on the podcast, like any suggestions that you have, send them our way because yes. we are we are totally kind of open to suggestions. We have a few ideas about what we want to cover um, in mm-hmm. the coming months, but it's not set in stone, so. Yeah, and if you have a film that you've written um, a conference paper on that you'd like to come and talk to us about, we are equally open to uh, suggestions for for guests. Um, we will leave it there, I guess. Great, another cracking ending from Second Features. straight. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Perfect. Really getting the hang of this. Mm-hmm.